If you have your Bibles with you, I do want to read some uh, of Exodus chapter 16 in the Pew Bible that's in, near you, in front of you. It's on page uh, 73. If uh, you have uh, a different Bible, it's the second book in from the beginning called Exodus. We're looking at chapter uh, 16 today. And while you're trying to find your way there, I do want to commend to you an article that was written about our college ministry. Um, four years ago, we started a ministry to Anne Arundel Community College and brought uh, CCO here uh, to partner with us to reach that campus. And beyond our wildest dreams, God has richly blessed that ministry. And so uh, a magazine uh, called On Campus uh, wrote about it, and we made copies uh, of the magazine or got copies for you that you can pick up on your way out in the foyer uh, to read about our ministry uh, with Isaac and Frankie, uh, who are on staff here, but also all the volunteers that work in that ministry. Uh, you can pick that up in the foyer. Again, Exodus 16, I'm just going to read the first of five verses and then skip to the end of the chapter. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And then if you'll skip with me all the way down to verse 27 to the end. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, let no one go out of his place on the seventh day, so that the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white and taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And an omer is about a tenth part of an 
ephah. May God help us to understand this, his word. Let me ask you, uh, how do you like grumbling? Is that uh, something that you like to do or like to hear? It seems to be almost a national pastime of ours. I always thought it was baseball, but I think it's probably more about grumbling. We grumble about the state of the culture. We grumble about the state. We grumble about those people. We mean typically those people who are not like us. When you're older, it's the grumbling about the younger people. When you're younger, you're grumbling about the older people. It's what we do, and we're good at it. Now, the worst of all grumblers are those who grumble about grumblers. We tend to think that grumbling is what other people do. But I have justifiable complaints. I have constructive criticism that I want to share with you. We tend to spiritualize that and put it into uh, Christianese language like, I'm going to share truth in the context of love. It doesn't seem there's a whole lot of love with it. The reality is we all grumble and some of us grumble all the time. Chapter 16 records Israel's grumbling on the far side of the sea. That is, the Israelites have been uh, delivered from slavery of 430 years in Egypt. They have crossed over the Red Sea. They're celebrating their freedom. They're celebrating the victory of God at sea. And here they are with a new obstacle right in front of them. In fact, literally all around them. It's called the wilderness. It is barren as far as the eye can see. Food and water are scarce, but fear is not. They are wondering if God would ever get them out of the desert like he got them out of Egypt. How much can the human heart take of test and, and heartache and hard places that are, that are very difficult to be in that cannot sustain life? Had Moses rescued them, they're wondering, only for them to die in the desert. And so they break out in grumbling. It literally says in verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. That word grumble is literally a complaint. Don't think of it as a complaint in the sense that you've made dinner and the first thing one of your kids says, ooh, that's not the same thing of what they're doing. It is a legal term about justice. Has Moses and Aaron brought us into the wilderness to kill us? Moses, another way to say it is, Moses, you're at fault. We need, we need justice here. And literally, they're not really blaming Moses and Aaron. They're really blaming Moses and Aaron's God, their God. And, and, and it's a sneaky way to do this, but basically they're saying, you got us here. And we don't have food and we don't have drink. We were better off in Egypt where at least our bellies were full. It was hard. It was difficult. They were mean. They were, they were performing a genocide on us. But hey, at least we eat. While their minds are obsessing over the food, 
God has something bigger on his mind. He's got their hearts. He's concerned about where their heart is. Yes, they're free. Yes, they've been delivered. But has their heart been freed? Has their heart been delivered? So he provides food in a unique way. He could have provided food in lots of different ways. He could have put a BJ's right there. He could, he could have put on, just like they have a tent that they lift and carry with them everywhere they go, they could have had a Sam's where everybody could have come in and shopped. He could have done lots of things, but he didn't. He, he gave them bread every day and only enough to eat for that day. Why? Because it says that it's a test. It's a test of their hearts, not merely of their obedience, not merely of their resolve, not merely of their will, but a test of faith. Will they trust me? Not just for where we're going, but will they trust me for today? Each night, after the bread was gone, after they had eaten all the bread, each night when they laid down on whatever they slept on in the desert, would they rest? Would they rest in a trust that tomorrow morning there would be new bread? Or would they toss and turn all night wondering if God was going to be faithful, if God was going to provide bread, or would they go another day without eating? That's what their concern is. How did they do? Did they pass the test? Or would they hoard? Well, we know because it doesn't take very long in verse 27, however many days it is between the first provision and this fact that on the seventh day, when they're not supposed to go out and collect, they're out there collecting, but there's nothing to gather because there's no food, no manna. And in fact, he says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And so the natural question is, why does God test their hearts? Why is God interested in what's going on in their hearts? Well, in order to answer that question, you and I have to go into the wilderness with them. We have to see what's going on in the wilderness. And, that, and what it's going to reveal to us is a process, a patience, and a provision. That is, redemption is a process. There is patience in that redemption because it is a process and it is working with us. And then there's a provision of redemption. The very first thing that we see is there's a wilderness, and a wilderness is a place where biological life cannot be sustained, particularly human life. And so the natural question is, why are they there? Why are they in the wilderness? It is because, first of all, that God led them there. God uh, uh, came in the form of a cloud by day and in a form of fire at night. And so as the cloud moved, they moved. We estimate that it's close to about 2 million people that would move whenever the cloud moved, whenever the fire moved. And it was God who's moving them further and further into the desert, into the wilderness. They are there where there is no food and no drink because God led them there. This hard place, this difficult, harsh, dangerous place is because that's where God took them. But why does God do that? Why does God's plan for them and often us take us into wildernesses? And to find the answer to that, we have to look at their response to the wilderness. 
that God has led them into. Rather than remembering all that God had done for them in Egypt to get them to be free, to deliver them, they began to focus on something different. In verse 3, where, where it says we had it better in Egypt. Remember, at least we had these pots full of meat and bread and we ate our fill. That is language of slavery. And the point is, is that though they are technically free, though they are, are judicially free people now, their hearts are still in bondage. And that's why I think this principle is so descriptive of where we are. That is that you can get people out of slavery in an instant. But you cannot get slavery out of the people in an instant. That takes a process. Yes, they're declared free. Yes, Jesus died for our sins to pay them once for all. But we still in our hearts live as though we are still slaves. And we're using language. You can imagine after 430 years, no one can remember anyone who is ever free They adopted the language of bondage. And God is interested in going in there and exposing that so that our hearts can begin to be in line with our heads. That we know that we are free, but now that we can experience that in our hearts. God is seeking to change them by exposing their hearts. And God wants us to see our hearts and the things that we are struggling with. And and some of the things that we struggle with are lifelong struggles of shame and guilt and fear and, and struggle with temptation and things that we don't seem to ever get freedom from. But that's part of the process of the wilderness in which we are in. We know in our heads there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, we know that. The fact that we can memorize it, the fact that we can state it only proves one thing. It's here. But God wants it to go from here to here. And for us, that's a process. In the deserts, our hearts change. And it's in the desert that our hearts change most drastically. I wish it wasn't true. I I, I wish that when things are going well in our lives and and we're spending time uh, studying the Bible that we just automatically easily change. But that's just not how it works. Not because it's not designed to work that way. It is designed that work work that way. But our hearts are hard. They have to be softened. and, And often the only way to soften them is in the context of fire to mix our metaphors. That is, metal becomes moldable under heat and pressure. And that's where we are often. It is in the desert that we know what is true becomes tested in our hearts in what we believe. That is, God has rescued us, but he is also still rescuing us. God redeemed us, but he is still redeeming us. But that's the picture of what God is doing in a process, but we also see that this is a test. And that's 
so important that we go back and, and understand that this is a test, not only for them, but this is how God tests our hearts. Getting person, a person out of slavery uh, takes a decisive act. That's what the cross was all about. But getting in a slavery out of a person takes a process. And the bulk of the Exodus is that process. It describes how God exposes, reveals their heart, and then begins to change it. God is getting slavery out of his people, even though they have already been delivered of slavery. This is the purpose of all wildernesses, including ours. That's why when they began to grumble and complain, when they began a charge against Moses and Aaron, God comes and says to Moses, Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. But it's a test. I'm going to provide manna each morning. He could have brought manna so many different ways, but the way he decided to do it is that every day they woke up and there was the bread and they were to go out and represent their whole family and gather enough for everybody that's in their tent. And so if they have 10 people in their tent, they can collect 10 omars. We have no idea what an omar is. But whatever it is, it represents a day's worth of eating because it's supposed to be eaten by the end of the day that there's none left. Whatever the amount is. That every person, so if you have 10 in your tent, you can get 10 omars for everyone to eat all day long. There's only enough food for each person for one day. And then he gives a double Omar on the sixth day so that they don't have to do any collection on the seventh day that they might truly rest. Well, how did they do with that test? It's really two tests in one, or let's put it, it's got two sections. One is only collect what is required for your family on one single day. The other test or the other section of the exam Don't do it on the Sabbath. Don't do it on the seventh day. Trust me that I'm going to give you enough on the sixth day to cover the sixth day and the seventh day. Two sections of his final exam. Well, how did they do? Verse 27 says that some of the people went out to gather on the seventh day and broke both. They began to hoard. They failed the test. It's sad, but true. That a grumbling heart under deprivation becomes a greedy heart whenever there's an abundance. And you, you can see that. I had, had a dog that was a Katrina dog. If you know what that is, is when Katrina uh, 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 hit the Gulf Coast, a lot of people couldn't take their animals with them because the hotels wouldn't let them come in as everybody was fleeing the Gulf Coast. And so they let their animals go free. What, and a lot of people didn't come back after Katrina was over. And, and so nobody claimed these dogs. And so eventually they found their way into uh, shelters and then they gave them away for free. And so I got one of these dogs. And you can imagine a dog who's had to live outside for three, four months, the scavenging. And so when she lived in our house, we, we gave her food every day in the morning, kind of like the manna. But I'm telling you, I, we had one mid who at, at Christmas time uh, couldn't get home because it was snowmageddon. If you kind of remember, uh, Kathy and I were not at home, but this is what the kids told us. He ordered a pizza. And I don't know how you get a pizza delivered during snowmageddon, but he did. And we, we told him, be careful of this dog because this dog it, it grumbles in deprivation, but when there's an abundance 
and his pizza became her meal, he put it just high enough. And she took, I can remember this dog one time, Kathy had cooked uh, spaghetti and left uh, the noodles in the sink. I mean, how can the dog get there? But all she found was an empty colander on the floor. We laugh at that, but that's, that's what happens to us. We tend to think that people who grumble in deprivation, then when they get in abundance, everything goes well, but it doesn't. It goes the other direction. It becomes a greedy heart. In the world, when we take a test, it qualifies us or disqualifies us. You know that's true. Those of you who are still in school, you know when you take your final exam or you take the SAT, you, you know you, you're qualified or you're disqualified based on the tasks. It's kind of like when you go to the, the MVA and it takes you all day. If, you, if you're not from Maryland, let me tell you how long it takes. You better bring a lunch. They finally call you up there and they, and they want you to look through and see if your eyes, it's a pass-fail deal. It's not like, hey, you're close. We'll let you drive blind. No, they fail you for some reason. They don't want you driving if you can't see. Well, they took a test in the wilderness, and they didn't pass the test. But were they disqualified? Isn't it interesting? They're not disqualified. Look at verse 35. The people of Israel ate manna when? For 40 years every day until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. What kind of test doesn't qualify you? or disqualify you. You see, we tend to think this is a test about their obedience when it's really a test of their trust. Remember at the beginning we said that God is concerned about their hearts. Will these former slaves begin to trust the deliverer? This can't be answered by simply a declaration. Israel just can't come in and say, From this day forward, we will serve the Lord. Yes, that's a declaration, but when is that proven? Every day after that. Obedience is important in the Scriptures. Don't hear me wrong. Obeying the commands are important, but they flow from faith, not to faith. That is, when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Notice he didn't say, Keep my commands so that I can love you. Or keep your commands and then earn this salvation. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands because obedience flows from it. He's not testing their resolve. He's testing their faith. If it was about obedience, they failed on the first day. If it was about obedience, it's over. They're disqualified. But he tests their faith, and so every day is a new test. Every day there's manna, and again he's asking, will you trust me today? I I know you didn't trust me yesterday because you hoarded. Will you trust me today? Every day he does that. And then when they're laying in bed and all all the bread's gone, he's asking, will you trust me for tomorrow? Will you trust me that when you wake up? I know you wrestled all night long last night. Will you get a good night's sleep tonight? God is amazingly patient here. 
40-year patient. And what does it teach us? How can we, how can I be less patient with others than God is with me? Can you hear the rebuke? If God can wait 40 years to work, to deliver them out of the bondage in their hearts, how can we not be patient with one another? One more thing. Let's look at the provision itself, the manna from heaven. God provides bread in the wilderness. Why? So they won't die. He also tells them how to get it. It's important that he tells them how to get it because you can still die if you don't know how to get the food, even if the food is there. Something happens that shouldn't happen in that wilderness. There's not supposed to be bread there. I know we're in an era where, for health reasons, people are giving up gluten. Either, either because they're allergic or simply because it's a great diet plan. I understand that, but we were meant to eat bread every day. That's why I love Romania. Every meal comes with bread. The table is always filled with bread because it reminds us from the bread from heaven. It sustains the life where there's not supposed to be life sustained. Our own wilderness feels barren and void of sweetness. Did you hear what he said about the bread itself? He could have given us the same junk those astronauts eat up there that has almost no taste to it, but gives them nutrition while they're away from here. He could have done that. He could have given them a manna that when they put it in their mouth, it, it stuck to the roof of their mouth and it was awful. But it says that it tastes like honey. There was a sweetness to it. That God put sweetness into our wildernesses. He puts his son into our wilderness. And then he tells us how to find them. In the physical wilderness, God provides physical manna to sustain physical life. Exodus 16 points us to a spiritual manna for a spiritual nourishment. Look again at verse 32. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. Do you hear what he's saying? Let me finish this and then I'll explain. So that they may see the bread of which I fed you in the wilderness and I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put it of omer, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations as the Lord commanded Moses. So Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, hey, I'm going to give you for 40 years bread. I want you to take a sampling of it and I want you to put it in a jar and I want you to keep it for 40 years so that when you come into the land that I have promised you, you're going to bring that jar of Omer to remind everybody that I provided you manna when there was no way to sustain life in the wilderness. That's what he's saying. But listen to how Jesus interprets that. Jesus is going to speak about this very passage. In John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that's a way of saying, I'm about to say something that's true. Listen. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Okay, he said there's a, there's a bread that was given then, but I'm giving you a spiritual bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. How do we know that? He said, 
they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm the manna that all the manna points to. That jar that had an omar of manna pointed to me because I'm the bread of life. So whoever comes to me will not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. In Matthew chapter four, verse four, he says, man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Not only did he provide manna, he told you how to get the manna by the word. Every day you wake up and you begin your day by reading the scriptures or at the end of the day, when you open the scriptures, it is the eating of the manna that God has provided for that day. And when they said, Jesus, how do we pray? What do we pray for? One of the things he tells them is pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. This manna will sustain you in the wilderness, but it's a test. Will you trust me today? I'm not promising you what's going to happen tomorrow or next week, but today I'm going to give you enough manna for today. I'm going to give you enough to make it through today. Will you trust me? I know you're going to fail. And we're going to do this again tomorrow. I'm going to give you manna again tomorrow. Will you trust me today? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And right before I give you the end of it, our natural minds hearing that, if we're not supposed to be worried about tomorrow, about our clothes and where we're going to live and what we're going to do, what are we supposed to be thinking about? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. You want to make it through today? You want to worry about your belly today? Trust me. Trust me. So that whatever you're going through, whatever you've been going through for years, whatever you might be going through for years to come. God has sent his son into your wilderness to give you the manna from heaven, which is himself. And it's not enough for tomorrow. It's only enough today because it's a test. Will you trust me rather than your bank account, rather than your IRA, rather than your retirement plan, rather than your network of relationships, Rather than uh, uh, whatever your investments are, will you trust me? Not for down the road, but for today. Will you trust me? It's the only way you're going to be able to sleep at night. Because if you seek to trust in any of those things, you're going to be kept up all night long. Will you trust me? And the answer to the question is obviously yes, but that's just our declaration. That's like beginning today, everybody in my household will serve the Lord. That takes an every day waking up and eating his manna and trusting, resting in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again.
so much for the beauty of your word. It's not just beautiful to read because it's good uh, literature. It literally is life. It's the bread of life that if we believe it, we'll hunger no more. If we'll come to you, we will never thirst. But that's on a daily basis of trusting you. No matter what we're experiencing, whatever our struggle is, whatever our problems are, to come to you and eat the manna that you have provided for that day. For tomorrow has its own troubles. You have provided for today. Help us to eat what you give. In Jesus' name.